Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. In recent days, there have been worrying and hotly debated reports that the Biden administration will send US stockpiles of cluster bombs to Ukraine. Why? Well, it's argued that they are essential in bridging the staggering shortfalls of munitions the Ukrainians face in their fight against Russia. There's no choice, it's argued. Without them, the Ukrainians may need to fall back, opening the door to increased Russian war crimes in previously liberated regions. Others argue that there must be another option. The use of cluster bombs is a dark and dangerous road to go down, one that marks a worrying descent of Western moral standards to that of the levels of the Russian military who already use cluster bombs in the conflict. I'm your host, James Patton Rogers, this is Warfare, and with the laws of war and Russian war crimes in mind, I've invited Honor Hathaway back onto the podcast. Honor is Professor of International Law at Yale Law School, and she has been a member of the Advisory Committee on International Law for the US Department of State since 2005. She was previously Special Counsel to the General Counsel at the US Department of Defense. And it's with Honor's expertise and experience that we can take a deep dive into the broader claims about Russian war crimes, including the deliberate targeting of civilians, and we can discuss whether or not cluster bombs are the right route to go down to hold back the Russian invasion. Unsurprisingly, given the nature of the topic being discussed, this episode contains content that some listeners may find upsetting. But as I always say, this is an important topic, one we're fortunate enough to have Honor with us to discuss. Hi, Honor. Welcome back to Warfare. You were last with us in September, I think, and it was at a time when the world was still trying to come to terms, and arguably still is, with what happened in Butcher on the outskirts of Kiev, where it's now estimated that 461 civilians were killed and many were tortured by the Russian military. Now, it's over a year since those Russian war crimes took place, and I thought it was important that we had an update on the extent to which Russia had been accused of mass killings, atrocities, and broader breaches of international law within the ongoing conflict. But if it's okay with you, perhaps we could step back to Butcher, and you could give us an update on what's been going on and perhaps what we didn't know had happened since last September when we last spoke. Yeah, well, thank you again for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And what we've learned both in Bucha and elsewhere is just how systematic the war crimes were. This was not just, as some were hypothesizing early on, you know, a matter of a few Russian troops kind of gone astray, you know, a few bad apples who are behaving badly. This seems to have been really a systematic and intentional effort to 
really terrorize the civilian population. And we're seeing that as the evidence has been collected and there's been real efforts to document this, not just for you know news purposes, obviously, but because there are real efforts underway to, to hold people to account for the war crimes that they've committed in the course of this war. So we're just beginning to get that information out, frankly. You know, there's there's so many people in there gathering that information and gathering that data. Some of it's coming out in the news, but a lot of it's going to take some time to come out in the course of the trials. But for now, what we know is it was much more extensive. It appears to have been much more intentional. And really, it's probably one of the more brutal wars that we've seen in modern memory, certainly in Europe. And, you know, it's really, I think, a reminder of just how terrible this war has been and unfortunately continues to be. Will Butcher go down in history as being seen as an organized, deliberate, pre-planned cleansing operation? Is this what we're getting out of the information and the evidence from the trial? Because I remember just a few months ago, we were hearing from German intelligence who had been intercepting some of the radio communications, that that's exactly what the Russian soldiers had been told to run. And not only that, that they had kill lists, that they were gathering up certain prominent people to slaughter them, to murder them. And that's true. And that's been true. I mean, that's at least the reporting that we're hearing. And that's been true throughout the areas that Russia occupied. Many times it was leaders, people who had been local officials who were deliberately targeted, journalists who were deliberately targeted, people who were thought of as potentially the sorts of people who would be likely to lead a resistance or encourage resistance. Those folks were killed. Not only were they killed, but in many cases, their entire families. I mean, really horrific news that we've seen in Bucha in particular, but it's not limited, unfortunately, to Bucha. We've seen this kind of practice through many of the areas that that Russian forces occupied. So what you're saying is this is a cleansing operation that took place all around the towns that were occupied around Kiev in those early months of the war. Are we to expect then that this is exactly what is continuing to happen within Russian-held territory today? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair guess. I mean, obviously, we don't have great information about what exactly is happening in these occupied areas. You know, many of those who opposed Russian occupation fled. Many of those who opposed it, who stayed, have been killed. So, you know, I don't think the rate of killing is continuing at the same pace. But one can be assured that there's no dissent being brooked in those areas. And there's ongoing fighting happening, of course, you know, and there's now an effort to retake this territory, which is, you know, putting civilians once again into the line of fire. And so the situation, I think, is pretty horrific on the ground for people who are just trying to live their lives in these areas that now become the middle of a geopolitical, major geopolitical conflict. Well, like you say, as the Ukraine counteroffensive moves forward and makes gains potentially, although it's a, an incredibly slow move forward at this moment in time in July as we're recording. But there may be more reports of war crimes coming through. So could you explain to us that the process through which Ukraine is going to hold those perpetrating these crimes to account? Do we have certain prisoners of war, for example, that are being put on trial at the moment? Where is Ukraine gathering its evidence from and who is it holding to account? Well, so there's many routes towards accountability that are beginning to get underway. So the first is that Ukrainian courts themselves are beginning already to hold trials of war crimes. The prosecutor general for Ukraine has, from the very beginning, really early on, uh, from the first days of the war, begun collecting evidence 
and begun engaging in the process of preparing to prosecute these war crimes and has thousands of open cases. And that is really where the bulk of the prosecutions are likely to take place, partially because Ukrainian courts have already been engaged. They have clear jurisdiction over crimes committed on Ukrainian territory. Many of these crimes are sort of are horrific, but low level. You know, they're ordinary soldiers who've committed these war crimes. And when they're able to identify them, they will hold them to account. You've got the prisoners of war who are actually being held, who can be tried. And the very first case, you know, many of us saw this sort of young man who had been conscripted into the war, who was held to account for war crimes that he had committed. He shot a man who was just riding his bicycle. You now also see, and this is somewhat more controversial, um, but the Ukrainian courts can hold trials in absentia. So they are also trying to use some of the, both the evidence that's collected and then images of soldiers, many of whom, you know, didn't make any effort to hide their identity. They're using facial recognition to try and identify these people, many of whom caught on tape in the course of committing their crimes, and then proceed with trials in absentia. So, you know, holding them to account, though they are not likely to actually end up in jail unless they are at some point caught in Ukraine. So if they continue to fight in Ukraine and are eventually taken prisoner and the identity discovered, they could be put in jail. So that's one set of cases that are underway. That is in the Ukrainian courts. Those are already happening. There are already convictions. There are already people being put in jail. And that is going to be continuing for a long time. Separate from that, there's the International Criminal Court. And the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction over crimes against humanity and genocide committed in Ukraine because Ukraine agreed to the jurisdiction of the court back in 2014, even though Ukraine is not a party to the court, which is a kind of fine distinction, but they haven't submitted to the jurisdiction of the court as a party, although there's a lot of pressure on them to actually join the ICC that has agreed to ratify the Rome statute that creates the ICC. But nonetheless, these cases can go forward because They basically said, look, we accept the jurisdiction of the court over events taking place in Ukraine beginning in 2014. And so all the events that are happening are within the jurisdiction of the court. Kareem Khan, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, has opened a full investigation into past and present allegations of war crimes against humanity and genocide committed in Ukraine. Those investigations are taking place. There are lots of international investigators involved in that, as well as in the domestic prosecutions. And there's been an indictment of Vladimir Putin for one set of war crimes, and that is basically for the unlawful deportation of children. We're expecting a lot more prosecutions, a lot, of, lot more indictments to come, but those are, that was sort of the opening indictment, and that evidence Some of it has been made public, um, and we'll be seeing more of that as the trial eventually gets underway, although that will have to await, the actual trial would have to await capturing Putin, which at the moment seems a little far off, but they can continue building the material, putting together all the evidence, archiving it. So if and when a trial does go forward, um, that will all be available. You mentioned the kidnapping of children there, Honor, and... I was discussing this with a, a colleague of mine, Evangia Lukashenko, the other week, and she was saying to me that there are reports that once these children have been kidnapped and moved, and of course that is a very loaded term to say, the Russians may say they're moving these children out of harm's way as they move through and capture territories, 
but they're then being put through a, a sort of de-radicalization process or perhaps a, an education process to educate them in the, in the right frame of mind, the Russian frame of mind. Is this in itself uh, labeled as a breach of international law as a crime? Well, yes. I mean, there's so the unlawful deportation of the children and unlawful transfer of the children from occupied areas is what it's featured in the indictment. And so the evidence that's put forward in the indictment um, or that's cited in the indictment is that they knew that these children, uh, you know, had families who wanted them, that they intentionally deported them from Ukraine into Russia, in many cases forcibly adopting them into Russian families and putting them through these effectively these re-education programs um, to sort of bring them into a frame of mind of sort of seeing Russia as their new home um, and sort of nationalist indoctrinization into Russia that is part and parcel of this process of unlawful detention and transfer of the children. I think it will be part of the evidence that's presented. It's the it's really what features primarily in the criminal case is the removal of these children, the separating them from their families, the failure to give information to their parents and other family members about where they've been, the refusal to return them to parents who clearly want them. And, you know, the process of this is really heartrending. I mean, they're telling these children that they're not wanted, that their parents don't care about them, that they've abandoned them, which in many cases is not at all true. Some of the children who've been moved are also orphans, you know, who are being taken and indoctrinated against the families that they were once part of. So it's really a kind of terrible case. And I think the ICC started with this, both because you kind of have Putin on television basically celebrating <laughs> these acts, you know, so they, they've effectively admitted on camera to doing the things that they're charged with. And so that makes it easier to prove. There's also satellite evidence that shows the setting up of these camps and the moving of these children. So there's pretty good documentation, but also because this is just so heartrending, so powerful, so terrible. You know, the, the thought of children being taken away from their families, torn away from their families, um, told that their families don't care about them. For children who've survived and made it through these, these terrible attacks and these wars and their own lives have been at risk and whose family members are at risk, like adding that on top of it all is just so terrible. And I think really compelling. And I think that's part of the reason that the prosecutor started with this case. I think they also started with this case because Again, it's often hard to connect individual war crimes, you know, like the war crimes that we see at, in Bukha. We can see that individual, that Russian soldiers committed these crimes, but showing that Putin ordered that is really hard. And so connecting the dots between the person at the top of the chain and the terrible things that are happening on the ground is often very challenging for war crimes trials. And this is one where they had, again, you know, Putin on basically on television celebrating this. And it's clear that this is something that he ordered. And I think they didn't want to start at the ICC with these very low level soldiers. They wanted to be clear they're going after the leadership. They're going after those people who are most responsible. And they're going after mid-level officials as well, which should give them real pause about the role that they want to play in continuing to support the war and certainly supporting and being a part of these ongoing war crimes that are taking place.
airplanes, spacesuits, condoms, coffee, plastic surgery, warships. Over on the patented podcast by History Hit, we bring you the fascinating stories of history's most impactful inventions and the people who claim these ideas as their own. We uncover exceptional stories behind everyday objects. We managed to put two men on the moon before we put wheels on suitcases. Unpack invention myths. So the prince's widow immediately becomes certain. Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time. Can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is arguably the most famous person in the West. And look backwards to understand technologies that are still in progress. You know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you want to live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever. So subscribe to Patented from History Hit on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to catch new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. And there's something quite insidious about the kidnapping of children because it is symbolic in the fact that it shows it's a battle over the hearts and the minds of the future of Ukraine. When you're re-educating the youth, then you see Russia trying to build a country, a state of its own territory in those parts of Ukraine, perhaps looking for a future partition as a resolution to the conflict. But sadly, this is just a scratching of the surface of some of the crimes that Russia has been accused of. We saw that Ukraine's top prosecutor, who was in the U.S., giving evidence to U.S. lawmakers in quite graphic testimony, was saying that Russian forces have been deliberately using rape, torture, kidnapping, that some 20 torture chambers were found and more than 1,000 survivors have reported an array of abuses, including electric shocks, 
waterboarding, being forced to strip naked and threats of mutilation and death. And so with all of this in mind, as we focus on those crimes that Russia are being accused of, to what extent has Ukraine committed war crimes that are even anywhere near tantamount to this? Yeah, it's a fair question. So there is this question of, you know, are we all focusing just on what the Russians have been doing and not paying attention to Ukrainian war crimes? So it's important to be clear that Ukraine, though it is engaged in a lawful war, it's defending itself against an unlawful invasion, can be held responsible for any war crimes that it commits in the course of that lawful self-defense. So a war crime would constitute any violation of international humanitarian law. So any of those acts that you described, if Ukraine was responsible for doing those same things, would, should, and I believe will be held to account for those crimes. You know, there has been some sporadic evidence of events that are war crimes, mostly cases where Russian soldiers were killed, where it wasn't clear that they were still engaged in the fight. So under international humanitarian law, when somebody is hors de combat, that is, they are wounded or they have surrendered, that means they're effectively out of the fight. At that point, they're no longer a lawful target. You can't kill them if they've surrendered. You can't kill them if they're so wounded that they can't engage in the fight. And there have been some reports that there have been individual incidents where Russian soldiers have been killed in those circumstances. And my understanding is that those have been investigated. And I think that the leadership of Ukraine understands how essential it is for them to maintain the moral high ground here and that they have to be, they have to wage this war as cleanly as humanly possible because if they don't, they lose that moral high ground and the legal high ground. And that is really in some ways their strongest resource here. That is the reason that they are holding their own in this fight and may even win it is because they have the legal and moral high ground. And if they ever lose that, it threatens the support that they're receiving internationally. It threatens everything that they're trying to do. And I think they know that, they understand that. And so they are investigating these crimes because they, and they're educating their soldiers about how important it is to fight the war as cleanly as possible. Now, Obviously, Ukraine's fighting on its own soil. It's not engaging in some of the horrific war crimes that Russia is engaging in where, you know, it's bombing hospitals. Russia is bombing apartment buildings that bombed the pizzeria and killed lots of civilians in the course of that. I mean, there's zero evidence that Ukraine is doing any of that. So the reported incidents are much more limited. I think it's also worth our engaging the question about cluster munitions, which has been pretty controversial lately. You certainly preempted my next question. I mean, for me, this cluster munitions debate makes me incredibly worried about the notion that the war in Ukraine, that Russia's offensive war against Ukraine, is eroding the broader standards that we've held ourselves to in war as we see the Biden administration looking to deploy their own cluster munitions in conflict. Do we run this risk that we're being dragged down with this Russian disregard for international law? You know, there is that fear. Myself, I'm of two minds about it. I've written in the past about the fact that cluster munitions are regarded by many as in and of themselves, no matter how they're used, as just effectively a war crime because they're indiscriminate. They're very hard to sort of narrowly target and to have them actually hit the thing you want to hit. They tend to hit more stuff around it. 
And then we've been hearing a lot about the dud rate and the fact that it leaves behind these unexploded ordinances. And U.S. manufacturers have basically stopped making these cluster munitions. I was looking at one point into whether there could be an alien tort statute case against U.S. manufacturers for using for supplying cluster munitions to the Saudi-led coalition for its war in Yemen, uh, where cluster munitions have been used pretty extensively by the Saudi-led coalition and caused really extraordinary and terrible civilian deaths. And what I found was that U.S. manufacturers basically stopped making them once it sort of became clear that cluster munitions were regarded by many as inherently in violation of IHL. Well, it's, it's very rare, isn't it, for the United States to be party to any international controls on weapon systems or any aspect of uh, of international law, although it may abide by its own domestic rules that could be parallel to that. And when it comes to the United States, we've seen that there is a law, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the United States cannot deploy cluster munitions that have anything less than a 1% dud rate. Yes. But what we're talking about here is weapons that perhaps have a 2.8% dud rate. And this when it actually comes to the practicalities of warfighting and of someone we've had on the podcast before, an old friend of mine, John Ismay, who's a world expert on cluster munitions, says that actually the reality is that when these are deployed, they actually have a 14% dud rate. And, you know, what we mean by that is that 14% of these cluster munitions will not go off when they hit the ground. And that means that they are lingering indiscriminate weapons that sit there either to kill allied troops that move through, Ukrainian forces that move over the battlefield. And of course, during the first Gulf War, we had terrible rates of US soldiers being killed by their own cluster munitions. And then they linger on post-conflict. And we've seen this in Laos and in Vietnam of American butterfly bomb cluster munitions that are still being cleared up to this very day and still killing and maiming civilians and children. And so it just becomes incredibly difficult to see how the US, the allies and NATO can maintain that moral high ground and abide by international law by agreeing to deploy these weapons. Yeah, you know, here's the, I said I was of two minds. So I said the first part, you know, the argument against, here's the argument in favor, which I'm not sure I entirely buy, but I at least see. And this is the reason that I have not written against this. And this is it. From what I understand, basically Ukraine is running out of ammunition. It's running out of munitions. And the entire Western world has been trying to up its production of uh, munitions, but has not been able to keep up with the rate at which Ukraine is using them. We haven't had a war like this for a long time. We had some stockpiles. Those have been largely depleted. And there's a certain amount that the U.S. Department of Defense is going to insist on holding back for our own use. We don't want to like run through all of our ammunition and then not be able to have any available if something goes sideways elsewhere. So basically, as I understand the case for it, it's that they're basically about to run out of munitions. They need to be able to continue to fight. They're in the middle of this effort at taking back some land. And this is essentially a bridge to when they are able to sort of up the production and get the more precision uh, munitions back on the battlefield. I suspect as well, part of what's going on here is the U.S. realizes it's basically not going to be able to use these itself. There's lots of internal debate about whether these can actually be deployed. And so effectively, these are munitions that are sitting around on a shelf that it's not clear the U.S. is ever going to be able to use itself, precisely for these reasons. And add to this This is a case where Ukraine is using these munitions to defend itself against a 
fundamentally illegal war where Russia has itself been deploying these cluster munitions with much higher dud rates, as I understand it, something closer to 20 or 30 percent. So you've already got a ridiculous amount of unexploded ordnance lying around, and there is going to be a decades-long process of clearing mines and unexploded ordnance from the territory of Ukraine that already has to happen. Like this is going to be an extraordinarily dangerous place for a long time. And they're talking about only using it in places that not using cluster munitions in urban areas, but only outside of urban areas to reduce the likelihood that civilians are going to be affected by them. You know, and they're keeping records of where they're going to be deployed and where they're being used so that they go in and clear those areas afterwards so that they know, you know, where basically the hotspots are. So if there was ever a case for the use of cluster munitions, this may be it. And I do think that the fall of Ukraine, the failure of Ukraine to be able to defend itself is a geopolitical catastrophe. And in the face of that and the kinds of precautions they're talking about taking, there's an argument that if it really is the case that this is the only way in which they can continue to defend themselves, it makes sense. But this is a very, very unfortunate situation. And it's a kind of least worst option. And yet it's still a pretty bad option. So that's, I think, where I end up on it. But I don't think anybody's really celebrating this move or happy that this is kind of where we are. I completely agree with that. And I appreciate you breaking down both sides of the argument there. I think one thing it highlights to both of us on a, and to our listeners around the world is just how much warfare has perhaps changed in 10 years since we were both talking about Obama's drone program and the moral, ethical and legal constraints of precision missiles and then hellfire missiles and targeted killings. We're now back to talking about indiscriminate and disproportionate weapons and the US supporting and supplying the use of cluster munitions in a war that's that's raging in Europe. And as you say yourself, you're investigating how Saudi Arabia were potentially breaching international law for using these weapons themselves in Yemen. It's, it shows to we perhaps reach a, a threshold in this conflict, one where international law is being degraded just due to the fact of its scale, its length, and its brutality. And one of the things that worries me as we look forwards is we've known that there have been shells running out for the last year, year and a half. And the troubling issue we have is that there hasn't been that massive ramping up of industry to fill that shell gap. It makes you think back to the the shell scandal of the First World War, but you make these really important points. If there aren't these weapons in place, then what's the other option? Do you allow Russia to make gains for the Ukrainian counteroffensive to fail? And then, potentially, there is the very real risk of Russian military forces moving back through into these territories and committing those very same war crimes, those cleansing operations that we've spoken about at the top of this podcast. And this shows you the kind of dual problems of international law, I guess. In some ways, there is a a case here for breaking one level of international law to stop the breaking of another level. Well, let's put it this way. I think where this ends depends a lot on what happens next. And what the impact is for international law depends on what happens next. If Ukraine manages to hold out It is an extraordinary example where law was really its most powerful weapon. The fact that Ukraine was fighting a lawful war, that it was fighting as lawfully as is feasible, 
that it was defending itself lawfully under Article 51, that it was abiding by the international humanitarian law, that that was the thing that led the world to rally to its case and that it survived as a result, which we hope it will, that will be a great triumph in many ways for international law. I think that what happens next on cluster munitions, if this response can lead to more clarity about the fact that cluster munitions are inherently unlawful. And, you know, we mentioned there's a cluster munitions convention. U.S. is not party to it. Ukraine is not party to it. Russia is not party to it. I don't know that I would say that it's a completely settled issue yet that is inherently unlawful ammunition. If the U.S. were to actually sign that convention, that would make a real difference. You know, that would send a message that, okay, this was an effort to deal with a particular problem at this moment. But we understand, you know, this is no longer going to be a kind of munition that can be lawfully deployed. That would be, I think, a really important step to fixing the harm maybe that's been done here. And I think that holding these war crimes trials and holding to account Russian soldiers and mercenaries who've engaged in these war crimes and having the International Criminal Court underway and actually effective at carrying out its mission, which, you know, we're still at the very early days of that. But if it's able to succeed at bringing to account some of the top leaders for waging this war in this unlawful manner, you know, these will be victories for international law. These will actually, the breaking of international law is not, an, is not by itself enough to erode international law. The failure to respond would erode it. And so the question is, what is the response going to be? Are we going to succeed in sort of reaffirming these norms through holding to account those who violated them? Or is the system going to fall apart? You know, and so for me, it's not just the fact that this war is happening that we need to look at. We need to look at what can we do to strengthen those international legal norms. And I think the answer is there's a lot we can do. It's not foreordained, but that's really up to us and that's up to what happens next. And of course, I think the most important norm to reinforce here at this moment in time is that it is not okay to breach the sovereignty of another nation state because once you let that norm slide, then you open up a can of worms that the rest of the world most certainly doesn't want to see. Honor, thank you so much for taking the time, for taking us through not only the latest developments, but also what has happened in the last year in Russia's offensive war against Ukraine. Tell us, where can we keep up with the latest developments? Where can we keep up with your research on these issues? Well, uh, you can follow me on um, all of the social media sites um, at, at Ona Hathaway. So O-O-N-A-H-A-T-H-A-W-A-Y. I'm on Twitter under that name and all the other Twitter follow-ons under that name. And whenever I write, I'll be posting. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I look forward to getting you back on the podcast again. You are our resident international law expert by this moment in time to talk about what it is that we can do to reinforce those laws against the use of cluster munitions. Honor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. A reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.